following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. A.W. Tozer wrote a book, um, The Knowledge of the Holy, and maybe one of the most famous lines or quotes that comes out of, out of this book is this, this thing he says, it's what's most important about you. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And I think that's why being here on Sunday morning, right, why opening up your Bible on a daily basis, why being in the context of community is so important. We're trying to get our thoughts right about God. We're trying to think correctly about God, but oftentimes we come with a lot of misconceptions or false assumptions about who God is, his character, what he's like, what he does, his attitude towards his creation. And this is detrimental, not just for our relationship with God, but for the way that we live our daily lives. Now, think, think, let, me just, let me tease this out a little bit. If Scripture tells us that God is this all-powerful, like go to Romans chapter 8, 28. It says that God works all things for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. Okay, so we see just in this passage that God has this power to work all things for good, but he also has this uh, proclivity, this, this um, he leans into us, he's in favor of us, that he's going to work it for the good of those who love him. So if we know this about God, we see that he's in control, he's for us, but if we don't actually believe that deep in our heart, like there's a way, they say that the longest distance to travel is from the head to the heart, right? This, we might know this in our head, but if we're not actually believing this, thinking with our heart, there's this disconnect. And what happens when we think God is small, that he's not in control, that he's not for me? Well, anxiety starts to stir up into our lives. Because right? anxiety is this desire to control things. It's this fear that, that God's not looking after me, that I'm on my own. 
Yet it's when we think rightly about God, our anxieties, not in just sort of this moment one-off thing, but by God's grace, the more we cling to the reality of who God is, the more he transforms us, he strengthens our faith, faith, and anxiety slowly starts to fade away. Right? This, what we think about God is important. It shapes all of our life. Now, among these misconceptions about God that we tend to carry with us is this faulty view of how we think God thinks about us. There's a little bit of inception there, okay? It's this, this view of how do I think that God sees me? Like, when God looks at me, what do I think he sees? And then the question is, on what basis? If I were to take a poll this morning to get honest answers, like, like real, like what in my heart of hearts that I tend to think about God, and I'm not looking for Sunday school answers to tell me what I want to hear, but if we're talking to the heart of hearts and give an honest answer, I think there would be a variety of answers. Some of us would be like, yeah, no problem. Dude, I'm crushing it. God must be happy with me. Things are going pretty good. Some of us maybe, yeah, it's so-so. I haven't had any big blow-ups this week. I haven't done anything too terribly bad, so I think God's fairly okay with me. But I think most of us have this, this sense of shame and guilt that sort of drives these feelings that when God looks at me, he feels disappointed, right? I, I should be a bit further on than what I am right now, right? I've, I've been following Jesus for a, a good amount of time now, and so he's probably a little bit disappointed that I'm not further than what I am or frustrated with me. Some people, it's like, what do you mean God looks at me? You just have the sense that you're forgotten, you're overlooked, you, not even, that doesn't even register. Like, God doesn't, he looks at me, he thinks of me? Or some of us think maybe when God looks at me, he's sort of just dismissive of me. It's like, come on, just get it together, come on. These are all things that we, we tend to think about when we think of what God thinks about us. And at the bottom of all of these conclusions, the, what it rides on, what drives this, on the basis of what we think of how God thinks about us is my performance, whether I've been good this week, good today, or bad, or, or maybe not even just the, this small sampling of time throughout my whole life. And if this is the case, that, that God's view of me, that, that when he looks at me, his evaluation of me changes on a daily, if not moment-by-moment moment basis, depending upon my own performance. And if this is the case, then my spiritual state is always in flux. It's always changing. It's inconstant. It's never secure. Now, this creates a great deal of instability in, in our lives, whether you're aware of it or not. Because some people, you know, maybe that question completely brand new, you have no clue, you would never even thought about, but it's still creating this instability in our lives because what we're looking for is some kind of affirmation, some sort of validation of, of who we are, that we're affirmed. Now, positive affirmation paves the way for flourishing. You can ask any child psychologist this. If a child doesn't have some sort of positive affirmation, some encouragement, some validation, right, they're, they're going to be a shell of themselves in some ways. We long to hear this affirmation of, you are very good. 
It's the same affirmation that God gave Adam and Eve. Well, at first, God creates this pattern. We see in in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. And when he creates everything, he says, it is good. And he creates man, and he says, this isn't good. Well, the reason why it's not good is because Adam was created alone. He He needed this counterpart. And when God had placed Adam and Eve, man and woman, together in the garden, he looks and he gives a double affirmation. He says, this is very good. Nothing else was very good. But God says, humanity, very good. This creation, it's good. We long to hear that. That was part of, it's, it's, we just are longing, it's like music that's calling out to us. We just want to hear it. Or we want to hear what God says when he splits the clouds open at Jesus' baptism. Right, the clouds open it up, and, and God, the voice of God, booms from heaven as, as a dove descends, right? And the Holy Spirit comes down, and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is what we long to hear God say over us. But for most of us, it feels like God is either on mute or that we are completely unworthy of that kind of validation. Now, if if God's affirmation is based upon our performance. If it rises and falls on our own resume, then no wonder why God's quiet or why he feels quiet. When we don't get the affirmation we long for from God, we start to look other places. We look to our spouse, our best friends, our boss, anywhere where we can get a sense of feedback of, yep, thumbs up, you're good with me. But here's the deal. If we're looking for this from other people, it's just as volatile than looking for it from God based upon my performance because it's based now upon the opinions of sinful people. And it's just as exhausting for us as it is for them. For them, if you're expecting to get this positive validation coming back from them all the time, there's this constant nag, this constant expectation that's placed upon their shoulders that they have to validate me. And if they don't do that, then you're going to be crushed. But it's just as dangerous for me, right? Because not only is it unstable, based upon their own opinions of me at that moment, it leaves me susceptible to manipulation. If if I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that attaboy, then that person can use me however they want. Now, when we can't get this external validation from God or from other people, we say, to heck with it, I don't need it. Now, this is why our society is where it is right now. Like this moment, we live in a society of the self, driven by self-esteem, driven by being self-made, being self-affirming. And we really see this trend developing uh, even as far back as the 30s when the self-help movement started emerging. You see it in the 70s as the sexual revolution uh, went underway. Like this thing is still driving our culture, and we're at a place of autonomy and self-realization where if I can't hear what I want to hear from the outside, I don't need it. I can do it myself. I can speak what I want to hear over myself, and that will be enough. And so we think like this. This is, this is what the, the mantra of our culture right now says. You can't rely on anybody else. You can't rely on God. You have to do it yourself. You do you. 
And so we've learned, we've put these tools in our toolbox uh, of self-affirmation, of, of positive self-talk. We've, uh, we, we've adopted quippy self-affirmations, right? This mantra of be true to you. It doesn't matter. Block out the haters. You don't need to hear what they say. If they say anything critical, for sure, mute them. They got nothing for you. You just got to convince yourself. Now, if you can self-affirm enough, this is sort of the ideology behind this. If you can self-affirm enough, meaning that if you muster up enough positive talk about yourself, perhaps you'll be able to convince others to affirm you too. But what ends up happening here is this barter system of phony and false self-affirmations. Like you're validating people on like baseless criteria. Now, the irony of being true to yourself, right? That's sort of like the mantra, be true, you do you. The irony of this is that it's rooted in self-deception. Now, it might work for a bit. Like, you might pull one over on yourself. You might, might even pull one over on some other people. Convince them momentarily that you are worthy of some sort of affirmation in and of yourself. But eventually, eventually this fizzles out. It can't sustain you. It's like, it's like so the first time I got a, a car, a new car a while back, and for a long time I'd just been driving like old junker sort of vehicles. But at a certain point, I don't even know when it was, they started doing, introducing this flex fuel thing. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, E85? So when I got a new car, I was like, heck yeah, I'm gonna get cheap gas now, this engine can take it, can process it, it's great. Well, I didn't really realize, but E85 is kind of trash. It doesn't get you where you need to go. Like, it's cheap for a moment, and then it just sort of fizzles out. That's kind of what this this concept of self-affirmation like this, this idea that society is pressing down for us, that you have to do it from these, it's like it can't get you where you need to go. It can't go the distance. Eventually, it feels dishonest. It feels like a phony. And the feelings of insufficiency rear up once again, and guess what? You, you feel crushed by it, right? When that reality comes and meets you. The message of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 tells us this. Only the gospel can give you the affirmation that you most long for. Only the gospel can do this. There's no other place, there's no other supermarket, there's no other distributor can give you the kind of affirmation that you're looking for. Now, it's not some sort of phony validation. That's not it at all. It's not something that strokes our ego. In fact, when you come to the gospel, the first part of the, the gospel, Tim Keller breaks it down to this. He says, the gospel is you're worse than you ever thought. That's the first part, right? So kind of a blow to the ego, right? That, that you're broken, that, that it, it, it sort of snuffs out the ego and shows us how low we actually start. I, I've heard this before. It's like the gospel first brings us low. Well, the gospel doesn't actually bring us low. It shows us how low we were to start with. And that's really the first three verses of Ephesians chapter two that says you were dead in your sin and trespasses. You were enslaved by your sinful desires. You were following the prince of the power of the air. There there was some sort of oppression happening over you. There is something intrinsically wrong and embedded in us. That's why it says by nature, 
you are children of wrath. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Spiritual zombies walking around, looking like we're alive, but really there's a spiritual death settling inside of us. And, and I couldn't help but shake um, this line from the hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This, that says, as I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. See, the gospel first sort of takes out any sort of ego. So like, this is, this is just where all humanity, in fact, that's, that's one of the emphasis here of, of Paul, whether Jew or Greek, no matter what background you come from, this is the, the default tendency. But then the second part of the gospel actually lifts us higher than we could dare to even dream about. Verse four, after, after Paul lays this foundation, you were dead in your sins. Verse four cries out, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So this great love is now disposed towards us even when we were dead in our trust, even when you were at your worst. God's love was set toward you. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So here we see, like you were oppressed, you were under this sort of spiritual bondage of of the, the world, the flesh, the culture, the devil, right? There's this oppression that's happening in your life, and now you've been saved, you've been delivered, ransomed from it, you've been raised up, so you were dead in the grave, and now you've been raised up with Christ. But guess where you've been raised up to? You've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. See, this is a total, total swing of events, that you were in the grave, spiritually speaking, and God raised you up with Christ, and now you are at the highest of highs with him. Jesus saves us from our sin. He raises us. He seats us with himself. And this shows us, the gospel is the message that while you were at your worst, God was still moving toward me. While you were at your lowest, you had nothing to offer. You had nothing on your resume that was worthy of applause. God was still moving. And he shows us this. This is the gospel news. Jesus is taking us from death to life. He's delivering us. He's setting us free. He's saving us. And Paul bangs this gong that the church cannot stop banging until the day Jesus comes back, this gong of grace. He says, by grace you have been saved. So here, any sort of ego, any sort of self-like worthiness gets yanked out from underneath of us, but we get all of the accolades seated with Christ. Everything that's Christ is now ours. We're told earlier in chapter one that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And Paul says, it's not your doing. You didn't earn it. It's unmerited. It's a gift of God. This is God's work. This is what happens when your life intersects with the gospel of grace. By grace you have been saved. It is a gift. It's not achieved. Now here is the paradox of gospel affirmation. See, in the society, it's like you earn it. In the world, if you want affirmation, if you want to get to the top, if you want to be recognized, you got to earn it. you got to put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. The gospel 
says this, I get my affirmation, not because I earned it, but because Jesus did that for me. It comes to me in spite of my failed attempts to earn it. Now, here's the reality here. In order to get God's affirmation, for him to give that sort of blessing, the the two things that Adam and Eve and Jesus had in common when they heard the affirmation from God was that they were sinless. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had not yet experienced sin. Jesus, sitting there in the baptismal waters of the Jordan, had not sinned. The way that you get God's affirmation is by being perfect, and guess what? We're not. But Jesus' perfection can be imputed to, can be given to you. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, where Jesus at the cross takes on my ugliness, my brokenness of my sin, my failures, my just complete inadequacy in, in God's righteous eyes, and he puts them on himself. It says, he who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. See, there's this exchange. I get Jesus' righteousness. He takes my sin, and it's nailed to the cross. Jesus gifts us his perfection. He pays the price for all of our sins, deals with the consequences of our brokenness, of our rebellion, of our spiritual deadness, so that we could become clothed in righteousness. So that when God, look at at me, when God looks at you, when your faith is in Christ, he does not see your failures from the past life you've lived. He does not see the struggles that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Those don't define you. When he looks at you, if your faith is in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ applied to you. Oh, I want to sing right now. This gift, I can't earn it, it's given. And the way you receive it is through faith, the trust. See, that's all it takes for God to see you, this change of being defined by your sin and your inadequacies to being defined by Christ's righteousness is this, this lean into the gift in faith. Now, if, if, you've exp- like if you've done this, if your faith is being exercised, it's placed upon Christ, that means, as a Christian, you've undergone massive change. This cannot be understated. You have gone from death to life. You were enslaved to now free. You were once an object of God's wrath. Now you're an object of God's love and mercy. You were once an enemy of God, and now he calls you his child. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. You are cursed, you're blessed. You were cut off, now you're brought in. See, this is far more than the spiritual equivalent of getting a new haircut. And I think that's how we tend to think of this. Like how we tend to think, like this little add-on to my life, this new little piece, this flair in my, I don't know, in my life that, that I just sort of like a little bitty thing, it's cool, it's nice. Like, but what Paul's trying to get at here is there's this been monumental change that's happened to you because of grace. Now, if you haven't yet experienced this change, it's because you haven't yet received grace. And... <clears throat> Excuse me. 
God is not stingy. The gift of grace is available to you right here and right now. And you received this gift by faith. Now, if you haven't yet received, I pray, God, that you would receive this gift, that you would understand the transformational work that happens when you live, when you are redefined by the gospel instead of your failures. What happens here in the gospel is there is a complete recreation of who you are. Like you, we've been talking about the whole theme of Ephesians, the angle that we're taking as we make our way through it is of identity formation. That in the gospel, you receive a brand new identity. This is why in verse 10, Paul says, you, let me find it, my, I don't want to mess it up. He says, listen, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift from God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here, listen, if you're a Christian, there's been a complete recreation in your life. That's why in, in, in 2 Corinthians it says, you are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, it's passed away. The new has come, a new person. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that I switch personalities. It doesn't mean that, okay, now I've got to become a new person like, uh, I've got to reinvent. That's not what this means. It's not, you don't lose any of your traits. You don't lose any of the individuality that makes you you. You're still the same person, fearfully and wonderfully made by God with all your quirks and beauty. God affirms that. But what happens foundationally is a renovation of the soul. The old nature of, of rebellion, of sin that's following the course of the world, that's following the prince of the power of the air, that's following the sinful desires, that nature is ripped out and a new nature of righteousness is installed with new desires, new longings, new identity. So that the glory of what is good about you, everything that's beautiful and good and true about you and your personality will remain the same and God is bringing up more and more glory and beauty and truth within you. Now this sounds good. I think this sounds good. But I had a kind of a week where this feels a long way off. I had the kind of a week where this feels like gibberish to me. That the old zombie self tends to pop up, that I get sucked into anger. I, I don't even want to laundry list all my stuff, but I, I get sucked into the old way that I've, I've been delivered from. Now, here's where Christians mess up. Here's where we forget about grace because we resort, like we get Jesus and then we revert back to this, some sort of religiosity where I've got to earn it, like I've got to dance for my dinner to get what I want from Jesus, what I want from God. And I forget that my identity has already been cemented in Christ. And so I go on this roller coaster ride of my own performance again. Somehow I get swept back into it. Can you relate? Anybody here can relate to that? Okay, good. 
Well, not good, but Jesus is working on it. It feels like a long way off of this beauty, of this goodness, of this truth being sort of produced in me. Now, you might be asking, listen, if I've been recreated, if I'm a new creation, why am I still struggling with this sin? Why am I doing the things that I don't want to do? Why am I reverting back to my old ways? Now, this, this can become clear to us in understanding two theological concepts. The first one is that you have been justified. There is a legal standing right now. If your faith is in Christ, you are definitively a new creation. That is who you are, period. Now, the way that works itself out in my daily life, well, I, I want to I I move deeper and deeper and deeper into that reality. I want this beauty and this goodness and this truth to spew out of me, yet there is this reluctance, there is this unbelief that stops me from leaning into that. But the, the process of sanctification, which can only come after you've been justified, is where God slowly, it feels like way too slow sometimes, where God is slowly bringing us deeper and deeper into grace and making that beauty, that goodness, that truth sort of cultivate and flourish within us. It's this process of becoming who I already am in Christ. See, justification is this is who you are. Sanctification is the process of becoming who you already are. It's underway and the thing that, that drives both justification and sanctification is God's grace, which is why when, when Paul's talking about this, by grace you've been saved, it's not just that you've been saved by grace, you've been sanctified by grace. Why? So nobody can boast. So nobody can, even in Galatians, Paul says, what has bewitched you? What thinks that you've been brought into, into the family of God by the Spirit, and then you maintain yourself in the flesh? That's not what happens. You don't get sanctified by white-knuckling it and doing it yourself and trying to prove yourself. Sanctification is an inner working of grace where God is affirming and bringing to the top, uh, to, 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 to the level of fruition, that which you already are in Christ. So grace drives justification, grace drives sanctification, and this means that if you are a Christian, you are both a product of grace and under construction. You're a product of grace, meaning that you've been justified. Boom. Legally, that's who you are, but you're being sanctified. God is still at work making that reality come to fruition in your life. And God is doing this Listen, just so you have some sort of uh, time frame to, to mitigate some expectations, this is a lifelong thing. There is no finish line on this side of eternity. God, in his grace, continues to be at work, whether you're a brand new baby Christian or you've been walking with the Lord for seven decades. Now, this is why Paul calls us, like church, us, the church, God's people, those who have put their faith in Jesus, he calls us God's workmanship in verse 10. This is, this imagery of God's workmanship, I, there's just a lot of really cool stuff that I don't really have a ton of time to get into, but, but the idea that God has his hands on you, that God is a master builder, a master sculptor. He, he, he's a, 
a world-renowned artist, and his hands are upon you right now getting to work. He's detail-oriented. There's nobody in the game better than him. He knows exactly what he's doing. And his hands are at work in your life right now. Now, so let me take you back to the Greek word here of workmanship. It's poema, which is where we get the word poem. Now, poetry is a sort of artistry, right? It's something that's very underappreciated in our time. But for poets, it can take a poet just as long for them to write a good poem as it does a novelist to write an entire book. Because this this poem, every word is meticulously thought about. The placement of every word is meant to invoke a certain idea, concept, a sort of mental imagery. And so here, the the idea that Paul, God is so skilled, so detail-oriented, so in the weeds of your life that he is investing all kinds of time, all kinds of labor, making you into his workmanship. Sometimes he uses a gentle brush stroke. Sometimes he uses a chisel. It's crazy. Like something so, like woodworking, for example. It's like you've got this meticulous, you've got to be very tender, move the tools in the right way. Yet at the other hand, it's a, a hammer. Pow! <laughs> God uses both methods here to work on us. And sometimes, some of you might be in a season of gentle brush strokes, which is lovely. And some of you might feel like, dang, I'm in the, I don't know, I've been watching Forged in Fire. Anybody watch that show? They got the big, big blue pounder thing. That's what it feels like. Pounding the iron to get it flat. That's what it might feel like to you. But either way, God is making a masterpiece. And it's crazy, because in some ways, you already are. And in some ways, it's still happening. I, I couldn't help but, as I was thinking through this, um, this, this quote from uh, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis book, he says something to this effect. I'm going to you know, summarize here, but he says, there are no mere mortals among us. He says that when God finishes the work that he's doing in us, and you look at your neighbor, you look at that person, your MC, you look at your spouse, the work is going to be so glorious that you are going to be tempted to fall on your knees and worship them. That's, that's the sort of prestigious work that God is doing in our lives. Now, if God is making something so beautiful, so glorious, let's revisit this idea. How does God look at me then? Well, we we can draw some similarities here between uh, how a master craftsman looks at his masterpiece. Somebody who spent months and months working on this one piece of art, spending every effort, every, every little ounce of energy, their blood, sweat, and tears into this, using every skill, every trick that they know to make this pinnacle work that they've created. And how do they look at that? They're proud of it. It's a prized possession, and they approve of it. 
This is how God looks at us if we are his workmanship. See, the love of God that saves us is working to recreate us. And Jesus himself pours his blood, sweat, and tears into us. See, that's what happened on the cross. This is the way that you are remade into this new creation is his blood, his sweat, his tears invested to make you this new creation. Gave his ultimate price to make us beautiful, to, to recreate us in his image so that we would shine in the glory of his likeness. And here's the thing. When we find our glory in Christ, like when the work in Christ really comes out, he, it's not us who gets worshiped. See, that, that, that wasn't the point of C.S. Lewis saying, hey, you're gonna worship this person now. He's saying, like, the work that Christ does is so glorious, but what's gonna happen is you've gotta follow that thread back to the creator, back to the artist. That's where all your worship gets dumped out. Jesus is glorious, right? He says this in verse seven. God does all this to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is showing off and how he can take dumpster food and make it something spectacular, something unbelievably glorious. And when we find our true beauty in Christ, the artist, not ourselves, is praise. That's why Paul reminds us, it's not of yourself. So nobody can boast. It is a work of God. And as we live our lives saturated in the awareness of God's grace, Jesus gets the glory. He gets the credit. This is how God sees you if you're in Christ. That you are his workmanship. That he's at work in your life right now. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He's making you more beautiful. And you are his prized possession. He bankrupted heaven. All the blood, sweat, and tears, all the skill, all the effort, so that he could make you. And when we're in Christ, we get the affirmation that Christ gets. We hear that, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And this is how we find stabilization in a very tumultuous and confusing and unstable world. If we are grounded in this identity, in who we are in Christ, we are unshakable. Even if that means there's still a long way for you to go, right? Because here's the promise of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Yeah, you're, you're work in progress. God's not going to stop. He's still going. Now, what's really interesting is it's got this whole thing about, you know, this is where you were. This is where the gospel brings you. This is where Jesus brings you. This is what you are now. You are his workmanship, your prized treasure, prized possession, Verse 10 actually goes on. He says that we are God's good work created for good works. Check this out. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus for, 
So here's the purpose for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's this big shift that happens in this. So at the beginning of chapter 2, it says that you are walking according to the culture, walking according to your flesh, walking according to the principality of the air. And now Jesus says there has been this intervention where now you're not walking by those things anymore, but you're walking by the grace of God, and you're walking into these good works. You are God's workmanship, but you are God's working workmanship. He's called you to do good works. You are deployed in his service, not a piece of fine art to be set up on a shelf and kind of appreciated from a distance. God creates you and sends you. He unleashes you. We're masterpieces with a mission to demonstrate God's work in our lives to show what God has done is our testimony of what God's done in my life, but also to call out that good work God is doing in other people's lives. I'm closing up here. As we began the year 2021, um, we had four prayers. Actually, I got my bookmark here. Four prayers. To know more, to do good, to joyfully endure, worship hard. I hope you still have these. I come back to mine every, every week. And here, this clearly Kings, the do good prayer. Because we're being told here we were saved by grace through faith, not by us, but by God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, this can be so vague when we think about good works. Like, what is a good work? What does that mean? Like, hold, hold the door open for people? Is that a good work? What, does that qualify as a good work? There is a, a level of surfacey stuff that, okay, go for it. Run with the wind here. Do those things. Hold the doors. Um, go, I don't know, be a good neighbor, mow your neighbor's yard, whatever. Do good stuff. But there's, there's a deeper goodness that God is calling us into to cultivate a gospel culture in our homes, in our missional community, in this church, right, to cultivate a place where we can identify in one another that you are God's workmanship and there's still work he's doing. To, to love people when they're at their worst and see the love of God move them to their best. Now, this, this means, like, a couple things, Paul's going to get into this with being a good spouse, being a good parent, working hard on the job, serving the needy and the underprivileged. Like those are things that, yes, do those things. But this, this culture of goodness is what God is calling us to create. And we are doing the most good when we are praying, when we are showing people Jesus and telling people about Jesus. That's when we're doing the most good. Now, you've been placed in a specific time and place to reach a certain kind of people. That there, is, there are some good works that only you can do because God planned for you to be the one to do them. Now, this gives us a sense of purpose. Like You, you might feel like your time at work is so unfruitful or your time at... You, get, your neighborhood, whatever it might be. Listen, you are there with a mission. And God gives us this sense of purpose so that we would do good, that we could show off the grace that Jesus has placed in our lives and, and, and let other people know they can get in on this too. And God is delighted when we get in on this with him. Like when we live into this, when we're living on mission. 
And the most meaningful context for good works is in relationship, whether that's with a non-yet-Christian who we're telling about Jesus, we're showing them the gospel, talking about the gospel, or that's within your church family, your missional community. See, that is the context where the good works God has prepared for you to do are the most meaningful. And it's this ability for us to look at the people in our homes, in our missional community families, to look at you and say, hey, I, I love you. I praise God for you. But I see what God is making you to be, and it's glorious. Tim Keller says a Christian friend is a miner, has the ability to sort of dig in deep relationally and pull out the real identity that's already implanted in that person. That's what our missional community should feel like, pulling out the real identity from one another to remind you, you are God's workmanship created for good works. And when this happens, beauty abounds. Beauty, goodness, truth prevails. And God continues his good work of calling people to himself, of bringing us deeper into his grace. Father, we thank you that you are the master craftsman. You are the potter, we are the clay. God, you know what to do. You know what we need. You know how broken we are when we come to you, but God, we want to know what you see. We, wanna, we want to lean into the potential that you are cultivating within us. Continue to grow us into the gospel, Father. And I pray that even this morning, if somebody's hearing the gospel for the first time, they would hear the lengths that Jesus went to to, to save them, to bring them out of this former life and into the new life that they could be a new creation. And for those who have been recreated in Christ, help us to live into who we already are. That in us and through us, you would do good work. That you would continue to shape us into the image of Christ. But you would use us for the gospel to advance in our city and far beyond. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.